there's your version of the truth, there's my version of the truth, and somewhere in the middle there's the truth. <laughs> Unless it's hard data, a lot of opinions and positions will be subjective. And, you know, subjectivity brings with it all the experience that you have. It comes back to how are we raising our society, you know, and how are we encouraged to think as individuals and are we encouraged to think and are we challenged? And this brings us to a really important point on the importance of having discourse. Hi, I'm Christy. I'm Adam and you're listening to The Foil Podcast. Where we talk about the opportunities and the risks of the data age. What it means for you and what it might mean for us all. Hi, Kylie. Welcome to The Foil. I'm really excited to have you on and I'm so proud of you. Congratulations on where you're up to in politics now. We've known each other for a long time when we were baby consultants in PR. Can you tell me, how did you get into politics? Hi, Christy and Adam. It's great to be here, actually. So thank you for having me on. One thing I say that people constantly are perhaps a little bit amused by is that I'm not a politician. I don't consider myself a politician at all. But what I am is somebody who has very serious concerns about the way our country is currently being managed, you know, whether that's in the area of momentum around action on climate, both for our environment and our economy, whether it is how our economy is being shaped and that forward focus, you know, on putting innovation at the heart of it and increased productivity here in Australia, whether it's, you know, getting integrity brought into that federal level of government or equality uh, for all, you know, women, First Nations and people seeking asylum here. These are all issues that I feel are fundamental to who we are as a country, you know, and I came to politics because I realised that this country that I love, you know, I'm an incredibly proud Australian and I'd always trusted that we were heading in the right directions. But when I looked up in the last couple of years, I started to become aware of things that were happening that I don't truly feel do reflect our values as a nation and that they were happening and we weren't kind of noticing. And so um, how I got into politics, somebody asked me to run. You know, there's a community group here in um, North Sydney called North Sydney's Independent and they had identified an opportunity to challenge what has been a traditionally liberal seat. You know, the, the North Sydney seat has been in place since 1900, 1901. It was the first federal seats. And for all but six of those years, it's been held by the Liberal Party. And um, I think, you know, this group looked at it and went, well, you know, the problem with us being a liberal seat is that we are a very progressive community and yet the person who represents us is bound by their party loyalty first, not their obligation to speak for our community. So we're in this very surreal position where we elect somebody to go to Canberra to represent us. Um, they tell us what we want to hear when they're in our community, but once they get into that building in Canberra, they're actually, their vote is being cast in exactly the same way as Barnaby Joyce's. <laughs> and I don't think Barnaby Joyce is somebody, I have no no disrespect meant for Barnaby or those that vote for him, but Barnaby would not be an appropriate um, member for the seat of North Sydney in Canberra. So, you know, for me, it was just that realisation that, hang on, you know, um, our voice should matter. The people that surround me are thinkers, feelers, doers, you know, these are people that are captains of industry, that are captains of compassion and care. And yet when their vote is being cast in Canberra, it's being voted in the same way as um, it's being cast in the same way as Barnaby Joyce. And that's just not on. So, you know, mobilised to stand as an independent because then as an independent, 
um, the only voice that matters to me is that of my electorate. I'd love to get into that in a moment to find out more about what your electorate cares about. But first, I was talking to my kids last night at dinner and I said, I'm, I've got my old friend Carly Tink on the podcast tomorrow. And guess what? She is running for uh, parliament as an independent. What would you guys think if I came home and said that I was running and going into politics? My eldest son said, I'd say you were crazy, <laughs> but you could do some good. What did your kids say? Yeah, um, Christy, you know me. My kids, I have three children, so an 18-year-old, a 17-year-old and a 14-year-old. And for the majority of their life, I've been a working mum. So, you know, I think they know that I am my best self when I am contributing on all layers of my personality. Interestingly, they weren't really that surprised when I talked about entering politics. You know, I think they've seen me particularly... um, In the last 12 years, um, my focus has been very much in the not-for-profit and advocacy space. So, you know, they've seen me fight for causes that I really care about and work with people across a broad sector to try and bring about positive social change. So um, they were concerned, I'm not going to lie. You know, I think um, I don't think my daughter would mind me telling this, but <laughs> when the first thing she did when I told her that I'd said yes to running was she actually took her phone out of her back pocket and I kind of said, no, no, you know, you can't announce it. This is not announceable. And she goes, I'm not doing that. And I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm just sanitizing my social media feeds. <laughs> and I thought, you know, it was really, she was so clever to know that, you know, that was something they immediately had to be aware of. So we're a tight unit. You know, I think my kids and I have been through um, a lot over the years and, we're very supportive of each other as as individuals. So I do think, though, it won't be until, you know, my kids grow up and have their own kids and maybe find themselves at my age and kind of think, oh, my God, our mother did that. <laughs> what was she thinking? But um, so far, they've they've been great. They're really, really supportive. I'm sure they're really proud of you as well. Well, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> And, you know, you've got such a rich history in business, in the business community as well, in the private sector, not just in the, uh, not just in the for-profit sector, but also the not-for-profit sector. Um, Kylie, I wonder if, if you just sort of paint a picture across some of the highlights of your, of your career in the private sector before politics. Yeah, you know, I think um, basically I, I was a born campaigner and I come from a very a small business background. So both my mum and dad were always in their own businesses. So to me, it's always um, been a no-brainer that good business brings about good results, you know. And um, one of my very early uh, mentors said to me, if you focus on doing good work, everything else take takes care of itself. You know, you attract good people and you get good outcomes. So... I've been very fortunate, you know, I've worked across, I've worked at the government sector with um, area health services and Department of Health. I've worked in the commercial sector, particularly in the area of communications consultancy. I, um, in a period of six years, went from that junior consultant level to actually um, running a consultancy here in Australia, which was a fantastic opportunity and amazing learning environment for me. And then I, I was actually getting ready to relocate internationally when Jane McGrath died and um, as a consequence went in to help with her funeral but ended up staying on and running the McGrath Foundation for six years. So the Sydney Pink Test, you know, the explosion of nurses from three nurses to 100 within six years, 
um, that was a really that was a major highlight for my life. And from there, I've gone on to work in areas as diverse as advocating to get kids out of immigration detention centres, supporting St John's ambulance services, and um, most recently working with youth, vulnerable youth across Australia to try and decrease the rate of delinquency and crime, and also importantly, decrease the rate of youth suicide. Wow. And now, of course, we work together in that consulting firm where really you were very known for being such a capable, talented strategist and also very personable and a, a person with great integrity. So these are the sorts of values, I suppose, that are really important as you think about moving into politics. What is the independence movement about and those values in particular, why is it important to have uh, values like that in Canberra? Firstly, thank you for saying that, Christy. That's um, It's very kind of you to express those thoughts about me. I mean, you know, from my perspective, the one word I'd use to describe myself is authentic. I, I don't know how to be anything other than what I am. And um, I'm not really very interested in being anything other than what I am. So, and um, I think... What you're seeing in the rise of the independence across Australia is is a real awareness that, for whatever reason, our political environment is no longer honouring those values or seeking to pursue those values. You know, when the constitution was created here in Australia, there were no parties. So the Australian constitution was written for independence. The whole way it was created was so that communities could send a representative to a particular building and those communities could have an equal and fair debate around what should be the future of our country. That's why it's called the House of Representatives. <laughs> um, somebody did say to me the other day that it's taken 100 years for this system to establish itself in Australia and the system is very happy with the way it's working at the moment. The only thing it can't cope with is independence <laughs> and here they come. So um, I'm so excited when I look around the country and see the people who are stepping up, you know, in seats like Hume and Hughes and Kuyong. And um, we already have amazing people like Sally Stegall and Waringa and Helen Haynes and Indai. And I think what you see without exception when you look at every single one of those people is people who have the courage to have a conversation around the matters that are important to our nation. And they're not being stymied or gagged by party politics or um, a vested agenda that they're obliged to, you know, hold to. So I think it's a really exciting time for politics in Australia. And it actually leaves me very, very hopeful because, you know, what I would say in closing is anyone who's dissatisfied with politics in Australia at the moment, we need to own, we created this system. This is a democracy, you know, and every person's vote is equal. So the system is of our creation. What's exciting about that? we have the opportunity to recreate it. And, you know, I think you and I and, and Adam, we've seen major disruption across industries right around the globe. Um, I think this is the disruption for Australian politics that it needs to have. And I would, you know, I believe really firmly that from this disruption will come a stronger system. Such a great set of principles to lay out and so amazing that the independence movement is is gaining traction and having success. I'm really interested to hear more about your thoughts of what is at the core of that sense of dissatisfaction that you're picking up on as the zeitgeist of this moment. Adam, I think it's it's just fundamentally that we we have a government that is acting in a way which is not congruent with who we are as Australians. 
you know, you, there's so many examples in recent times of um, things happening in Canberra that wouldn't be tolerated anywhere else. You know, to have a, a minister referred to a committee for review and then to have the standing party, as it was the case with Christian Porter, and then to have the government vote that down, that had never happened in the history of Australian politics. You know, they basically said to the Speaker of the House, no, we're not listening to you. And that's not how the rules apply. We saw it yesterday. You know, um, the, there was debate. Well, there was a motion to start debate in the House around an integrity commission, which is something that this government you know, promised us as it came into government three years ago. So we're a thousand days past the point that they promised us. In the House, the vote was carried, and it was carried because a very brave woman stood up on the Liberal side of the floor and crossed the floor to make that possible. The government then turns around and on a technicality says, no, we're not going to debate it because you don't have a majority. Again, unprecedented in this country and a situation that was created by the Prime Minister himself in terms of how he's structuring the number of people allowed in the House. So I have no doubt that the issue here at the moment is that we have a a power base in Canberra which believes it can operate without being answerable to the people of this nation and that's not on. This is our government. And in fact, I think that was a big moment for me. I heard the Prime Minister say, it would have been about six months ago now during a press conference, a journalist challenged him about their position and he said, she said, this has been published by the department. This must be your government's position. He looked her dead in the eye and, and pointed to the two men standing to his right. And he said, no, this is my government. Until we speak, you don't have a position from us. And I was just floored because I wanted to reach through the screen and shake him and go, no, you're our government. It's the other way around. You know, you are not a power in and of yourself. So, yeah, it's, I'd yeah. said to someone the other day, it's like naughty boys misbehaving and someone needs to go down and sort it out and send them to the naughty corner for a while. Sounds like you've got a lot of expertise in doing that, <laughs> Skyler, <laughs> and that you're going to be ready to rumble in Canberra because um, that is your, your tagline, isn't it? Let, let's change the climate in Canberra. Can you tell me now what what do the people in your electorate care about? Yeah, it's um, so I've done a lot of listening and I think that that for me was a very important place to start. There's no doubt that like the majority of Australians, people in North Sydney are concerned about the climate. And, you know, we are now at a point where you can no longer reasonably be a climate denialist. You know, that the body of scientific evidence is just unquestionable. Um, the challenge we have now is that climate denial has turned to climate delay which is what we're currently seeing in terms of the tactics being employed by the Australian government. So North Sydney siders don't accept that. They want to see faster action and they recognise that it's not just about our environment, it's actually about our economy. You know, we're talking about billions of dollars of investment that will not flow into Australia and it will go to countries like Chile and Rajasthan because we don't have the policy framework to support that investment. They do care about integrity. The majority of the people living across North Sydney work in corporate environments and they recognise immediately that the behaviour we've seen in Canberra, particularly in this last six years, would not be tolerated in any other work environment. You know, if, if you missed an order, as was the case with our vaccines here in Australia for COVID-19, that was mismanaged by our government. There is no question about that. You know, there should have been an order in six months before it went in. Um, in, a, in a commercial environment, you'd be fired. Because you, you, know, you, you stopped your production line. 
Um, in our government level at the moment, it's not even acknowledged that it was a mistake. And, um, you know, we're told we need to get over it. So integrity is really important. And then equality is the last piece. You know, I, I attended a event in Canberra on Wednesday with Sam Weston and was absolutely floored to learn that in Australia, we currently are considered number one in the world for education for women. For every 100 women at university, there are 74 men at university. Yet, we are currently 50th in the world when it comes to the gender pay gap, and we are currently 70th in the world in terms of workforce participation for women. We have a problem in this country that needs to be addressed, and it's not just a women's problem, it's a societal problem. And um, the fascinating thing in that is we've got the solutions, we just don't have the political will to prioritise it. So they're my three kind of key areas. Of course, there's heaps of other things that I'm passionate about, you know, from First Nations to Asylum Seeker to um, infrastructure, um, EVs. But when you, you know, roll them all back up, those three, environment, integrity, equality, are the three words you can throw down and go, that's where we need to focus and do better. Let's start at the top of that list. Kylie, I've read you describe of yourself that you are uh, socially progressive and economically conservative. And at the same time, I have somehow come to be of the impression that being an economic conservative is in tension with the idea of being progressive, if you like, on climate. If part of your major policy platform, if one of the top three things that people in North Sydney care about is climate, how do you reconcile that with being an economic conservative? Have I got it wrong to begin with? Is there no tension there? What's what's going on? No, actually, well, it's really interesting because it, from my perspective, I would say there is no tension because, you know, the basis of it being economic conservative is that I want to see our economy thrive and I want it to be successful. And I believe that in our nation, we have a philosophy that if you work hard, you can achieve really great things. So from my perspective... It is, it is the economic conservative in me that says we are missing economic opportunities at the moment. You know, it, as it currently sits in Australia, for every $1 invested in sustainable and renewable energy, there is $3 invested in f fossil fuel subsidies. So we are hanging on to grim life on old um, energy technology. And um, when you then look around and see, I actually had an economist say to me the other day, there is no doubt that Australia will eventually be a renewable and sustainable energy superpower. In terms of continents and countries, we are the one continent and country in the world that has the highest rate of UV access to our solar panels. We have more consistent wind than any other nation in the world. And yet we are literally dragging our government to that table. So the economic opportunity for our nation is to work out how to generate that energy to its maximum and then export it to other nations that don't have the same opportunity as us. That's about economic success and that's about economic conservatism. <laughs> so at a very simple level then, if we're currently spending $1 on green energy for every $3 we spend on fossil fuels, is the idea that we spend an additional $2 on green energy or do we deny one of the dollars or two of the dollars that we're currently spending on fossil fuels? How does that work out being cheaper for the average Australian? We need an active transition plan, Adam. Nobody sitting in a position like me and certainly not, I am not advocating for a minute that we turn off fossil fuel energy tomorrow. That would be completely unreasonable and unrealistic. 
But as it currently stands, we don't have a plan to transition away from it. And, you know, there's that old saying, what is it? Prior planning prevents poor performance. Um, it's, it's a no-brainer. We need to have not just a technology roadmap, this, this pamphlet that we were given by the federal government just before um, Glasgow 2020. There was no single new legislative proposal in that pamphlet. It's the same stuff the federal government's been saying to us for years now. And um, it doesn't actually lay down an aggressive and ambitious roadmap for our country to move forward. To answer your question, I do believe we should be reducing um, the subsidies to the fossil fuel industry because I do believe that the fossil fuel industry is running out of time. You know, we less 5% of the gas that we take out of the ground is used here in Australia. We're the largest exporter of liquid gas in the world. Um, very similar situation with coal. Um we have coal plants that are coming to the end of their natural lives. We've known this for 50 years. We've known these coal plants will time out as assets. And, you know, to build a new one, we know it will be a stranded asset. It won't have time to depreciate before it's no longer needed. So rather than fuss and fight around how do we keep that working, why not look at it and go, okay, we've basically got seven years that coal power fire station is going to close in seven years. What do we need to do between now and then to make sure there's an alternative energy structure in place to support that community? And again, this comes back to the really, really frustrating thing is we have the solutions. Do not fall for our Prime Minister saying we need to develop new technology. We do not. We have the technological solutions here. We just do not have the political will to move in that direction. The idea that we don't have a plan is is a, you know, it's a frightening one, um, and I hear I hear your argument for stop subsidising or winding back the subsidy for fossil fuels. Um, I also understand that there's been a historic argument in favour of subsidising fossil fuels, where that's currently helping to support, for example, a large amount of our agricultural industry who's able to claim back um, some of the costs that they spend on fuel. Um, and that that's been part of the problem of getting rid of some of these fuel subsidies that are also at the same time then going to massive mining conglomerates who are able then to claim back a lot of the uh, fuel that they spend digging coal out of the ground. How do you balance those two competing um, or, or aligned interests actually um, and disentangle that? Well, you do it by engaging with the key stakeholders and working out what's at stake and when it's possible to make particular moves. You know, I, I do, I don't know um, the exact split in terms of those, the fossil fuel re rebates, you know, as it opposes to agriculture industry versus the mining industry. But one observation I would make is I do think here in Australia, quite frequently, um, we will be offered stories around what is being done to protect the agricultural sector as a reason to not move against the fossil fuel sector. Now, I'll use an example for you today is methane. So every time methane reduction comes up here in Australia, and I, I don't know if you'll agree with me, but I feel like every time methane reduction comes up in Australia, the first thing that gets attacked is the cattle industry. And we get told that we can't reduce methane in Australia because to do so would mean farmers would have to butcher thousands of head of cattle. Okay, so that's the scary headline we get. Would you be surprised to know that the largest producer of methane in this country is not cattle, it's actually the gas industry. So methane is the largest accidental byproduct of pulling gas out of the ground. 
if we really want to be serious about reducing our methane targets, it's not our cattle we need to be looking at, it's our gas industry. But isn't it convenient that yet again, there is a story that's able to be told, which is, no, no, don't touch that because it's our agricultural sector that's at risk. Um, And it's stuff like that, that um, I I struggle to say this word and I'll be famous for being struggling to say it, but Uh obfuscation, (laughs) (laughs) fake fake story. I don't want to use fake news because I I don't agree with it. But, you know, that fakeness of data that I think um, we need to move away from. I'm glad you raised the point of data because that's really where I want to go to given we are really focused, I suppose, on being in the data age here. And with the campaign and election coming at you quickly, can you talk a little bit about how you think the campaign will roll out on either side of politics when it comes to digital and data and focusing those efforts on the electorate with messages and very targeted messages as we saw in the Trump campaign through of course, the famous Cambridge Analytica efforts, etc. To what degree are you expecting that kind of campaigning to occur here in Australia? And what is your approach to campaigning? Yeah, so um, I think there's a couple of issues here to kind of touch on. So firstly, I've I've never campaigned at this level. So I have to say that all, you know, everything I offer from this point forward is is my thoughts or my theories on how this will fly. Um The first, though, is I do want to comment on, you know, there was a lot of um, chat after Trump got into government around Cambridge Analytica and the data that it supplied and the role that it played. And I think what was particularly interesting to me here is that it feels like it's a double-edged sword. From a position, you can say we have never, as a species been so overwhelmed by information. We have access to more information than could ever have been conceivable. And so to be completely honest, from a completely selfish point of view, if somebody can do something to make sure that the information that's hitting me on a day-to-day basis is more aligned to what I really want to know about, I actually don't think that's such a bad thing. You know, being able to say, this is who she is. I, I don't want to be seeing stories on drag cars, for example. But if you want to talk to me about composting or LEDs, I'm your girl. You know, that's so I think there is that benefit. And to a certain extent, it is it is a consumer facing benefit because it enables me to have more control. The democratization of data, you know, it's, it's clearly being tailored to me. Um, and also from a campaigning point of view, it does save a lot of wasted resources. So you're not, you know, campaigning to people who are completely outside your mode of operandi, are never going to consider you and, you know, are not not even there. So you don't have to spend that dollar. Because there's one thing we need to be really clear about. Campaigning is really expensive. And in fact, I think it's one of the problems we've got in this country. Um, Our system is not geared up to be equal for all to participate in politics. And that's a problem for us moving forward. On the flip side, I think the danger in that sort of um, campaigning is that you create an environment where people are only hearing the opinions that resonate with them most strongly. And so therefore that capacity to see and hear both sides of the argument is lost. And you see what we're seeing in the US, which is this polarisation it's never been more polarised in the US than what it is at the moment when you look at all the data. Um, in Australia, 
I think we're not quite at that point. In fact, probably many people would argue that it's quite often very difficult to see the difference between our two major parties. You know, their, their policies aren't aren't that different. But I think where we're at danger at is the distribution of simple untruths. You know, we don't have a truth in advertising legislation here in Australia. So if you can believe it, the only advertising place that you can lie in Australia is political advertising. Um, You can make up a story and tell whoever you want to hear it that that story is fact and you actually can't um, be fined and that ad can't be pulled down. And we've seen examples of that, you know, in the last few elections, whether it was, you know, scare campaigns around Medicare being dropped or, you know, campaigns around carbon taxes being introduced. It's fascinating when you look back on those and realise how much of that was simply untrue. So I don't know what the answer is, Christy. I think, as I said, I think there is um, definite advantages in being able to more adequately provide tailored information to specific people. But I think it probably places a greater burden on us as consumers to be aware that we are being spoon-fed. And therefore, if we want to ensure you know, we're maintaining an open mind, we need to look to other sources and be constantly challenging ourselves to be open to other ways of thinking. Well, because we are in the data and digital age, you know, um, we're really talking about misinformation. Mm. Uh, We used to call it propaganda and how, you know, difficult it is to have a conversation where your echo chamber is feeding you information that you're very interested in and then we don't have that opportunity for critical thought and discourse. I know this is something you feel really passionate about, Adam. (laughs) What are your thoughts on that around having a genuine conversation where there is so much misinformation in uh, campaigning? Uh, it's, It's a very difficult thing to do when you are looking at those digital channels because, as you said, they are so... um, you can map it and deliver it into somebody's lap. I think that's where our more traditional channels, so things like town halls, community meetings, I think are very, very important, getting out there and actually speaking to people. And I think the other thing that this then wades into, I feel like we could talk all day, guys, but it wades into media ownership in Australia, yeah, and the importance of um, the media agencies that we have, like ABC and SBS, where they are there as a public service for news rather than a commercial um, enterprise. So the short answer is that I think it's going to be really challenging for our kids to understand that for them to gain knowledge, they need to be prepared to explore what's being put in front of them and not just accept it. And maybe that's the, you know, opportunity for our generation is to make sure we raise the next. Because I don't know about you, but I'm I'm old enough that I actually used to have to find information in world encyclopedias, and, you know, British um, Encyclopedia Britannicas. So I come from a different era where researching was old school, you know, off the shelf. Um, I do think it will be, you know, with my kids, just encouraging them to have that capacity for critical thought. You're right. We could talk about this all day. I remember being at at dinner actually some months, perhaps years ago now, and in conversation with, I think, one of the people who were contributing to the policy platform of the of the Labour Party some time ago, and the question was raised at the table in totally good faith manner, um, you know, what should we do about misinformation? There's so much talk about misinformation as a problem, and the, but the question of what you do about it seemed kind of the more interesting one. Um, I guess 
And and your background, uh, Kylie, in communications consulting surely has exposed you to the ways in which facts and true statements can be selectively assembled to form a particular point of view. And, you know, this is kind of a natural part of the everyday experience of discourse that we have with one another. We, you know, craft our our thoughts and our our opinions in certain directions um, selectively. How do you go about deciding what is misinformation? Or should I put it a different way? Who should we allow to be the arbiter of what is and is not misinformation? So from my perspective, um, there is always going to be three versions of the truth. Yeah. So there's your version of the truth. There's my version of the truth. And somewhere in the middle, there's the truth. (laughs) Unless it's hard data, you know, a lot of opinions and positions will be subjective. And, you know, subjectivity brings with it all the experience that you have. Um, Adam, you're completely right. You know, in my background as a communications consultant, it was frequently about looking at what was in front of you as the possible story and what was the best way, depending on what the definition of a best was, you know, to tell that story to the people that you were trying to speak to. I don't think the answer is in delegating this to um, a separate arbitrary organisation. You know, like it's not like, I don't think we could say, let's set up the, you know, the Truth Commission and the Truth Commission is going to keep an eye on everything to make sure everything that's given to us is truthful. (laughs) Uh, I actually do, honestly. Wasn't that an an Orwellian concept? (laughs) The Ministry of Truth? The Ministry of Truth. Yeah, Um, let's let's not go down that path then, eh? No, 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 no. (laughs) But it, it does, I think what you raise is that really important point, Adam, that it comes back to how are we raising our society, you know, and how are we encouraged to think as individuals and are we encouraged to think and are we challenged? And I mean, you know, I think this brings us to a really important point on the importance of having discourse. You know, it's interesting. I I met with a group of people on Tuesday night and one of the comments I made was, in all the years of running businesses for me, the one thing you wanted to avoid at all costs was groupthink. You know, you needed to ensure you had diversity and in your team so that you were always thinking outside the box. I find it fascinating that at our federal government level at the moment, it seems like groupthink is the thing they want. They don't want any digression. So, you know, I think it's it's how do we ensure that we are continuing to encourage our discourse, encourage discourse within our community. So is that the role of an independent, Kylie? to be able to call out the spin that you see and um, and be able to provide a broader perspective, an alternative perspective, um, to allow people to find that middle ground which we could describe as the truth. Yeah, I mean, Christy, definitely one of the main reasons I'm standing, and I've been very vocal about it here in my electorate, is that I believe we need debate to come back into the public space. You know, the the benefit of an independent, and we've seen it time and again with Zali Stegall and Helen Haynes, um, you know, these these amazing human beings have been able to produce legislation, put it into a parliamentary system, and then the only way for that parliament to discuss it is in the open. You know, it can't be taken back to a party room and debated behind a closed door. So I do believe that independence will play a very important role of pushing for greater debate. And I also do believe that independence force the parties to be more transparent 
with what's going on in their own internal discussions. Because um, the problem is when you've just got two groups of people having conversations behind closed doors, as I said to Amanda Vanstone <laughs> recently, you know, she told me that my local member was arguing for me on the issues that were important to me, but he was doing it in the party room. And my response to her was, I have absolutely no evidence of that other than your word because I don't have access to that party room. And when my local member leaves that party room, he votes like Barnaby Joyce. So I don't know that that's actually fact. Interesting to think about the independents and those that you just spoke about, Helen Haynes in particular. We've done some work in Wangaratta in, in Indi. Um, we've, we've worked, got the chance to work with many community foundations and organisations making data more accessible in the local community there. And Helen and her team, I mean, she has a very small team, massive impact that they make, yet they just don't simply have the resources that the other parties parties have access to. You know, um, she's excited about sort of work that we do because that means that they can have access to the data that they need to make the decisions that the community really wants and needs and understand context and use that in a way that um, helps advocate for policy that's needed in their local community. With campaigning, we talked about this before, what sort of data do the major parties get access to that you simply don't? (laughs) There's a a really, really huge one, and that's the Australian Electoral Commission (laughs) list. Mm. Um, Right from the get-go, you know, the the parties have um, the names and addresses of every voter in any electorate, where as an independent... Um, I don't get access to that. So just simply trying to communicate or identify, you know, all those that are registered to vote in this electorate is something that becomes very manual and and you do have to seek it out. To your point, um, Christy, I think the other big difference is, I mean, my team, I have um, three people I'm paying on my team at the moment and all of them are being paid reduced rates and the rest are all volunteer, including myself. You know, we're a 100% volunteer movement. And we don't have the financial resources to go out and pay big dollars for big data. You know, we're constantly scrambling. Um, I don't want to waste people's time by talking about things that aren't relevant to them. I don't want to waste people's time by putting messages or presenting messages to them in such a way that um, they find it annoying. Like that would be my worst case scenario to be the annoying candidate. (laughs) So, you know, I think evening that playing field would be, a massive benefit, again, to our democracy. And I think, again, that takes us back into spaces then around should there be legislation around the size of donations that can be received by parties? Should there be legislation, or not just parties, by politicians? Should there be legislation around the amount of money that can be spent on political campaigns? I think that would be an interesting one to have, an interesting argument. And what is it that really should be considered the bare minimums for creating a fair and equal playing field. And yeah, when you talk about Indi, they are a fantastic case study. And I mean, you know, Kathy McGowan was one of the first. We talk about Ted Mack here in North Sydney as being the father of the independence. Kathy McGowan was undoubtedly the mother of the independence. And I have so much respect for Kathy. She continues to be very involved in helping other independents get up in other electorates. Um, and I think the work that they've done in Indi, when you look at their policies around sustainable and renewable energy, look at the things they've done in that electorate. And I think, you know, it's standing applause from my perspective. And I wish more electorates knew what they'd been able to achieve. And the culture of that place, it's incredible. You know, the 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 power of the community sector as well as 
business and agriculture all through Indi. It's really a fascinating example and, and true. I, I think Helen is a true representative of her community. 100%. And as such is a great representative in the house of representatives. <laughs> we go again full circle to that story. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I think there's a lot for all of us to learn um, when we look at those things that have come out of Indi. So, Kylie, on the topics of truth and of discourse in our society, um, I wonder if you would weigh into a uh, discussion that we've had lately about some developments that took place. Recently, it was The Guardian who published a piece uh, back in September about an organization, Global Citizen, who'd applied for uh, public benevolence status from the ACNC, the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission, and had been denied um, on the basis of, the, of their activities involving uh, campaigning or advocacy. Firstly, perhaps as a, as a lead into that, uh, what your thoughts are between uh, advocacy and lobbying? Oh, that's a good question. The difference between advocacy and lobbying. I don't know if my answer is going to be completely satisfactory to this question, <laughs> but I think when you immediately pose that question to me, I think of advocacy as being an approach by people with non-commercial interests to try and bring about an improvement in society. So to me, advocacy is frequently um, driven by multiple voices from um, multiple places and spaces across the community. And the thing, and very different styles of people, but the singular thing that will unite them is an idea that something can be better than what it currently is. So that to me is advocacy. On the flip side, I think lobbying more often than not is tied to a commercial outcome. So you lobby for a, um, you know, a grant to be given to a particular um, area or you lobby for a particular subsidy to be maintained or a tax to be lowered. Um, I don't know. I think maybe if you picked up the Macquarie Dictionary, it would tell me I'm wrong. But <laughs> to me, um, that would be the key distinction between advocacy and lobbying. Sure. Well, I think, I mean, I don't know if the, if the Macquarie Dictionary would settle the, settle the distinction in any way at all. I think it seemed to us anyway that these were kind of Russell conjugates, if you like, the same concept described in two different words, depending on the attitude that you wanted somebody to take towards that. And mm -hmm. it seemed like that was kind of at the essence of why it was that an organization like Global Citizen, for example, might be denied public benevolence status is if they are engaging in activities that might be described as advocacy or lobbying, depending on perhaps, as you say, whether or not the, the thing that they're advocating for had a commercial impact. But if they were in involved in those activities, should our tax dollars be going towards supporting those activities? And I wonder if you have a thought, again, given your background in the not-for-profit sector and your passion for free and open discourse in society about that ruling. Yeah, well, you know, I think this is actually an incredibly important subject, and particularly this week, because one of the things we know about this government is it doesn't like gaps. <laughs> and so um, what we've seen time and again in various levels of legislation, particularly interestingly in the human rights space, is whenever a government a gap is exposed that the government fundamentally doesn't want to see continue to exist, they try to close it with legislation. And so the reason that this piece of news is so important at the moment is that the Senate is literally debating legislation in this next week. Um, 
that is specifically designed to change the uh, legislation around the ACNC so that it actually can deny and can deregister um, organisations like Global Citizens. So you talk about the fact they've been successful <laughs> in overruling that initial um, finding by the ACNC. I would actually argue that they probably haven't been because this legislation has now been proposed to um, summarily shut them back out. And the really interesting thing is that by moving in this legislative direction, what it's actually done is put a whole heap of other not-for-profits that are currently registered in Australia, such as the Climate Council, now at significant risk of also being deregistered. Um, I want to bring back to what is at the heart of this because I think it is important too to understand. So the reason the ACNC wanted to deny um, public benevolent status to global citizens is because they said that um, their primary purpose was not to um, generate their own money, that their primary purpose was just to mobilise other philanthropists and other not-for-profits to then do work in the area of poverty in other countries. And as such, they weren't initiating their own own, um, product. Now, it was a very, very long bow to draw and it it bemuses me as why the ACNC decided to take its stance with this particular organisation. But as a consequence, what it, it meant, we've now gone down this rabbit hole where basically the ACNC is now saying that any organisation that promotes public protests or any um, joining of... So if you can think of something like um, the occupation of um, Wall Street, for example, when it happened a few years ago, um, any charity associated with that going forward uh, under this new ACNC rule would be immediately able to be deregistered. So it will become unlawful for charities to actually promote the lawful activity, which is promoting a rally where people are peacefully blocking, um, you know, perhaps the entrance to a business or the entrance to a road. Um, It will become unlawful for a charity to set up an email group for a local community group which um, wants to use peaceful, peaceful process um, protest to, you know, um, draw attention to an issue. And um, they've also then brought in, you know, a whole heap of additional administrative burdens in terms of the documentation that needs to be carried around all the work that they do. And given the ACNC, if we step right back, the ACNC was originally established to reduce the bureaucratic burden on charities nationally because previously charities, well, they, in many states they are, were required to be registered in each state and had different you know, levels of obligations. That's why the ACNC was created. But the ACNC has now been perverted to be this um, organisation which rather than working with the not-for-profit sector and for the not-for-profit sector has almost been applied as a policing organisation with the assumption that the not-for-profit sector is doing something wrong and needs to be policed. And um, that's simply, it's simply not true. It's Kylie, how I read it is that Global Citizen was creating events that would drive fundraising and awareness around the particular issues that they were interested in. Now, how is that different from many events that many not-for-profits run around Australia and around the world on the issues that they care about? Uh, how is that different? It's not, Christy. And and that's why I say I'm bemused. I don't know what it was about Global Citizen that 
made ACNC decide to take this stand and not give them that PBI status. I really, I don't. And, um, I, you know, I'm not quite sure if we wanted access to those records under this current government. I'm not sure if we could get them. They'd probably be classified as parliamentary privilege or something and they'd be locked away from us. But it's actually, it's a really important point you make, Christy, because it's for that very reason that now that this, so the ACNC made a ruling, the ACNC was told its ruling was wrong. The government has now said, well, we're going to close that gap. But in closing that gap, they're going to catch a hell of a lot of other, excuse my language, but a lot of other not-for-profits that have been very successful and provide really important services in our country. And the really scary thing, I don't know whether you know this, but the new legislation actually enables the commissioner to deregister a charity, even in the belief they may do something in the future. It's not well, that they're doing it, it's they may do something well, in the future. Well, that's very concerning because it certainly does appear to me that you know, many not-for-profits who are raising funds and funding programs internationally or even locally in Australia would be subject to the controls that are that the government is looking to implement as a result of this legislation. Kylie, if you could expand a little bit, you said it would be unlawful under this under this proposed legislation. It would be unlawful for charities to promote protests. Put simply. What what's the punishment that's contemplated for breaking the law in that sense for these charities? Deregistration, deregistration, and potential cash fines. So, from, if, oh, okay. So, de, right. So, deregistration from the ACNC. Yep. So, loss. So, once mm. you're deregistered from the ACNC, you lose your what's called DGR status, which is your charitable status, and then um, there's also you know cash fines. And I, you know, I, I don't mind saying it. I'm a, um, I've, for a long time, I've been a regular contributor to the Climate Council in Australia. You know, I think they play an invaluable role in terms of continuing to explore policy positions for our nation. Um, the Climate Council is at very real risk of being deregistered because a lot of the work they do is, as you just said, Christy, reaching out, gathering, you know, diverse opinions to then very deliberately tabled documents that say this is what we could be doing better. And under this legislation from the government, they are basically saying they don't want any not-for-profit to have the right to hypothesise that we could be doing something better. This is unhealthy for our democracy. And I think, you know, it's very consistent with... I think, um, you know, you guys and I spoke previously, I had an amazing conversation with Lex Marinos, who's very high up in the arts sector here in Australia. And when I asked him what's changed most in the arts, his comment was that it saddens him that there's now this attitude that the arts is um, a sector which is going to be in conflict with the government sector all the time. And that, in fact, what that's led to is punitive action across the arts, his words, not mine. And when I said, so what does punitive action mean? He says the government withdraws money takes the money out of the sector. Um, so again, we come back. It's it's this very scary circle that we're going around and around in. We have a government that doesn't want to be held to account and doesn't want to be open to discourse with its citizenry. And so your position would be that organisations who enjoy public benevolence status on the ACNC should be absolutely free to, to uh, promote protests, activities, and to engage in that kind of advocacy and lo- and or lobbying um, without losing the the tax benefits, for example, of being on the ACNC register. 
Yeah, I think, you know, like I, I can be um, super careful here and say to you, as long as people aren't put at risk, you know, and there's no, right. no safety issues involved and it's not about violent protests, you know. I think, yeah. I think what's important here is that, again, it comes back to discourse and discussion is at the heart of societal evolution. And if we can't be open to new ideas and be prepared to have robust discussions. You know, one of my favourite sayings, guys, is I will argue, I will always argue like I know I'm right, but I will listen like I know I'm wrong. The problem with legislation like this is it actually takes out that second part. It just says, I'm going to be allowed to argue like I know I'm right, and I don't have to listen to anybody else. Um, and, I, yeah, it's befuddles me and it's just not to the betterment of our nation and I think that's the sort of stuff we need to stand up and say no to. And I think you you raised it earlier when you talked about how important it is as a business owner and in the corporate sector that all voices are at the table and people are safe to speak. It occurs to me that this kind of legislation means that very broadly there's a lack of safety to uh, to put forward a perspective to support an issue without the punitive action and risk of um, being, you know, struck off the NFP mm. list. It doesn't. It doesn't sound very democratic, does it? Really, when you took it, when you put it like that, it actually sounds um, quite autocratic. So I think, you know, that that's the big thing for us as a um, community to face into at the moment. And I'll go all the way back. The system we currently have of government in this country is not a bad system, and it is 100% a system of our own creation. I do not believe at the moment it is serving us to our, to the best that it can, but I can't complain about that because I was part of creating it. All I can do is accept responsibility that it's not what it needs to be and um, step into that opportunity to say, okay, well, let's fix it because it is infinitely fixable. It seems that speech is really kind of at the core of the of the principle, if you like. If you boil it right down to, to freedoms that everybody enjoys every single day, it's really about speech. And so I guess the way in which power might interface with speech would be either to stifle that speech. So we don't want to deny these organizations their right to speak, um, but then also to subsidize speech. So I guess the question might be, is subsidized speech as big a problem as as uh, stifled speech. What are the limits of of subsidised speech? That's a great question. What's the difference between subsidised, you know, not for profits in the academic? You know, it's the same. It's absolutely the same thing. We've got universities that are not at risk of being struck off their DDR status, but yet rely on the alumni to fund them till the cows come home. So from my point of view, I think I come back to that point that in my experience, when these organisations are advocating or lobbying, depending which way, which word you want to use, for an improvement in societal norms, I think that that is a good use of public money. Um, in an ideal world, Adam, we wouldn't need DGR status to encourage people to give money to these causes. It is something, though, that is um, fundamental to our society because, quite honestly, Australia doesn't have a very good record when it comes to philanthropy. We're one of the you know, least successful nations, Western nations, in terms of philanthropic giving. So um, I am a believer 
in the importance of discourse in our society. And I would definitely, if providing a DGR status is enabling robust discourse, I will always argue for it. I would rather have discourse than have it subjugated through punitive action, which is what we're sort of talking about here. It comes back to the point you and I made earlier. There's always three versions of the truth, your version, my version, and somewhere in the middle, there's the truth, unless it's a scientific fact. So it's a very slippery slope that you start to head down there because, as you know, a public dollar is spent in many different places. And if I was going to come back to a table and say, do I really want my public dollar going here? I can tell you right now, that's not the first place that I'd be looking to shut it off. (laughs) I agree with you 100%, Kylie. Thank you so much for your time today and good luck. In the next few months, we're really excited to follow how you how you go. And of course, we both live in your electorate. So look forward to seeing you uh, having a cup of tea uh, as we talk more about the issues that matter. Thank you so much for having me. And can I just say, and I just want to say as I hang up, thank you for the work you guys are doing with data. I know that you are about empowering organisations to have the same opportunities as the big boys. And it's just so important. So thank you for seeing that opportunity and stepping into that gap. Thanks, Kylie. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation. This is Christy. And this is Ada on The Foil Podcast. Check us out on www.thefoil.ai and follow us on all the socials. Share this podcast out to anyone you think might be interested in what we, our guests, have to say. Let them know what we've got coming up. See you next time.